You're listening to Reach, a podcast created for professional bloggers to help you expand your reach and maximize your bottom line. I'm your host, Val Geisler, fellow blogger and marketer at ConvertKit. How do you solve the variety of challenges your customers and potential customers have when they can't really articulate what those challenges actually are? This is one of the biggest sticking points for many bloggers as their business grows, but if it's done right, it can expand your reach in ways you never thought possible. So today we're talking to David Sherry, founder and CEO of Death to the Stock Photo. David helps people build their own unique projects in the world by supplying them with creative assets, education, and leadership. In this conversation, David shares how you know you're onto something and when you should step in with a solution the simple thing he's done to see his reach grow steadily over time, and what the buzzword impact really means to him. If you find yourself inspired by today's interview and want to impact your own reach right away, get our free action guide from this episode at convertkit.com slash reach, or just click the link in your podcast player. Now let's find out how David Sherry achieved his reach. David, thanks for being on the show today. Totally, it's uh, it's great to talk to a friend and also uh, a business a business friend, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I know we have known each other for a little while, but I think some of our listeners might be new to who David Sherry is. Um, so, who are you, David Sherry? Can you tell us a little bit about your um, at least the last couple of years for you? Sure. So, uh, after multiple kind of failures in college at starting companies, I went to the Ohio State University. I kind of lucked into this project that really picked up steam called Death of the Stock Photo. And so basically bootstrapping that off of an email list, we've created a SaaS product. And I've been running that for about two and a half years now. And uh, it's, it's mainly email-based, but there's a library basically that people can pay for access to high-quality images from photographers all over the world. So uh, that was kind of my foray into the entrepreneurship uh, community and land. And uh, yeah, I've been doing that ever since. So you s- actually started Death to Stock in college. I think I remember learning that when we first met, but I, I felt like maybe it was like right after college. But was it through, you went to business school, right? Yeah, well, I, I guess it kind of depends on which version uh, as well, because obviously, there's a first few iterations before you kind of hit on the thing that's actually effective and working. Um, but I, I studied economics, which is kind of f- funny because it's a photography company. But really, the way I learned kind of the startup route or the startup path was I was super lucky to find the Business Builders Club, which is kind of like the hackers and nerdy uh, students on campus who like building <laughs> stuff on weekends. And so kind of after you know working in college and, and knowing I wanted to do something my own way or my own path, but not really knowing what that meant or looked like. It was kind of not until I met the Business Builders Club that I really figured out how I could actually make that work for myself. So through that group, I kind of started and, and launched a few different things um, and learned from some of the older students in the, in the group who had already launched companies, who had apps on the App Store. And, uh, and yeah, and then there was a few iterations. I mean, Death of Stock before it is what it is today uh, was a bunch of different random things. I mean, one of the first iterations was just reaching out to companies and asking if I could shoot photography for them in exchange for free products. Uh, so it was kind of like, okay, what if I could just get a bunch of free stuff by hitting up all these different companies and seeing if, if I could shoot for trade. Um, <laughs> and, and that was kind of how I started seeing the real problem in the market 
which was there's all these networks, you know, Pinterest, uh, Instagram, Tumblr, uh, you know, Twitter, and they were all starting to become super visual. And my kind of pitch to companies was like, and I think this is back in 2013. And I was kind of just saying like, Hey, the internet's moving super visual. What are you doing to create enough high quality content and media to fill all those channels, uh, across the board? And since Instagram was really kind of still new, I think a lot of companies didn't take it as seriously at that point. So the, the pitch then wasn't as effective, but I think, you know, turn to 2016, you know, every brand kind of gets that visual media is a huge part of your marketing. Um, do you think that the brands knew that they even had that problem? When you approached them, were they aware that the internet was really shifting to a more visual look and feel and that photography was so vitally important to building your brand? Or is it something that they were well aware of and seeking out what you were offering them? Yeah, it's a good question. I think what they were focused on was social media. Like I think like the the thing that everybody was just saying all the time at at that time was you got to be on Facebook. Like this is when companies were hesitant to jump onto Facebook. And so mm -hmm. I think what they really were thinking about is how do we get onto social media? Like how do we create different profiles and just like be there as part of the conversation? Not so much like how are we strategically building our audience or uh, growing a community on social media. So I think it was kind of just they knew they had to be on there, but they didn't know what that meant. Um, and one of the iterations of Death of Stock, which is it's pretty kind of funny now at the time, um, is I was pitching companies on like a six-month road trip adventure where I would basically just shoot almost every day of this big road trip across the U.S. and just basically send them media all the time. like once a week, they'd get like a big package of photos from my travel. And I'd try to like go to their stores or their locations or meet their customers. And that's how I was going to create media for one of the brands. So that was really my pitch to them. Um, and I think they also kind of understood at the time that maybe some type of grassroots effort to build connections was something they should maybe be doing. But nobody at the time was comfortable enough to pull the trigger on anything like that. And I think if I were to pitch that today, it would be much more receptive. That's for sure. So you pitched that to existing companies. Did, did anybody take you up on the road trip idea? Uh, no, I got rejected a lot. Uh, I pitched uh, some local companies here in Columbus, uh, most of them lifestyle brands, most of them companies that are B2C. And then I pitched a few brands on the West Coast, like a car sharing company um, mm. and, and some others. And it was kind of just like, they, they were all custom pitches. So it was like, here's, here's this custom six month road trip that I'm going to take all with the purpose of creating all this media for your company, like just keeping you topped up with actually quality stuff. Uh, and, and yeah, I, it was cool because I got the experience like pitching CEOs and stuff like that. I was just out of school and I was uh, <laughs> nervous. And like, I remember being just super nervous uh, pitching to a, a local company here in Columbus and not bombing, but just like, clearly they kind of were just like, you're kind of crazy. <laughs> Um, and really the overlap for me was I wanted to travel. So it was just like, Hey, like, what if I can marry these two things, produce media for this problem I see, which is, you know, these companies need a lot of a content and I get to travel for a while. So that was, that was the thought in my head at the time. Now, the good thing is by not, uh, being accepted for that road trip, I was able to turn my attention to consumers or I guess people more in my tribe, which is like designers or small agencies instead of big brands. 
and basically see that they had the same problem. So yeah, that big brand or, you know, some of the giant, let's say like the L brands here in Columbus have the issue, but so does a small agency or a freelancer. They also have a need to have imagery and, and have, you know, tons of high quality media to use all the time. Yeah, I think almost any brand, especially now, has that need. And identifying that early on, I mean, even in 2013 was still a very different internet than we have today. And so to identify that need on a bigger scale, but now it's, it's pervasive, it's everywhere, everyone needs um, really great imagery for their brands. And I just, I wonder what, what it was that had you make that shift from, I want to do these big road trip, six months, bigger contracts, to I want to do more consumer focused, um, helping the the artists and people that you knew and people like yourself, like kind of, you know, a lot of bloggers and small business owners start out with their, um, their ideal customer as a former version of themselves or a current version of themselves. And, um, and that's the best way they can help someone. So you kind of um, went somewhere else and then came back to that idea. And, uh, and what was the catalyst for that at, at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really just about knowing that I had to figure out how to do it without being chosen by somebody. So I was at the whim of every brand I pitched. Um, and so as you get kind of rejected repeatedly, you kind of just start to say, okay, I need to make this work on my own terms and figure out how to make it happen myself. And so what I really started thinking about then, I think the shift for me was the only thing that's going to insulate me in the new kind of economy, I guess, is my own audience and my own brand. Um, And doing that at scale kind of allows me to do the same type of work. So the fun thing was almost exactly a year later to the month, we crowdfunded through our email list and community a road trip that was essentially the same thing I'd been pitching to brands, but now it was with our own audience. And so it was, you know, once the trip was done, we still had that audience. It wasn't like, you know, the hard thing of of pitching brands like that is after the six months, what do you do next? Mm. And so I think the shift for me was much more, I guess it was less about like the market and more about myself and thinking, I need to pick myself here and, and figure out how to make it work on my own terms. And I need to build something that's lasting of value where it's not just done after six months. I can continue on and keep building value there. You said something, uh, you've, you've mentioned it in a couple of different ways so far. You've said my own path and my own terms. And I think that's something a lot of people feel strongly about, about go, setting forth on their own path or designing their business under their own terms. Um, what, mm-hmm. what does that mean to you? Do you know what your path looks like right now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're a bootstrap startup. So I think one of the ways we've kind of done things on our own terms is, and, and I'm not anti-investment by any means, but I think it's just being really intentional about the decisions you're making that lead to longer term kind of consequences, um, both good and bad. And so I think for me, it's just about really trying to take a step back pretty often and looking at the work I'm doing and understanding what some of the trade-offs are that I'm making with any kind of big decision. Um, and, and yeah, just I think just having a lot of intention for the work that you're doing is what allows you to carve your own path. Um, so, you know, with the investment thing, let's say I had thought that like, oh, that's just like what you do as a company, like you just take investment. Well, there's some, there's some downsides to that. There's definitely some upsides as well. 
Um, but just like asking that question and, and posing it before you kind of just run in full speed ahead because, you know, maybe that's what you think you should be doing or like that's conventional wisdom. I think that's what I'd push back against is don't do things without the intention. At least, at least ask the question every time for those important decisions. What do you think the impetus was behind or what do you know the impetus was because it was yours um, to do crowdfunding versus um, just, you know, selling a product on your own. Um, a lot of people talk about crowdfunding and it definitely had a, a peak for a little while there. And I wonder if this was uh, right along the same time um, where things were really popular um, in the crowdfunding world. But I also know that plenty of people shy away from it because it feels like asking your friends and family to give you money. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you say crowdfunding, do you mean that you were on Kickstarter or something like that? Or did, how did... Yeah, that's a, that's, a great, that's a great question. I'd say it sold a little bit more like a product. So we actually just sold it through Gumroad. Uh, and by crowdfunding, uh, I guess I mean that we just sold a product for this trip to our audience. So the basic ask was, us as Death of the Stock Photo, myself and my business partner, Allie Lehman, uh, we're going to travel to five cities. We're going to shoot every, in every single city for multiple days. We're going to come up with X number of photos. And if you back this road trip campaign, you're going to get everything we shoot in all those locations. So it's crowdfunding in a way. I think they were also kind of buying into just a product. But mm-hmm. the way we pitched it, I, I think, felt more like a crowdfund. It's like, hey, you know, you've been on this email list for a long time. We've been delivering a lot of value. We want to give even more value through this road trip, but we need your help to get there. And so that's like the difference between either like a total crowdfund or totally just a product. It's kind of like getting the buy-in from your customers that they're helping empower you and you're also returning something of of value in return. You're also doing that minimum viable product thing that everyone talks about doing all the time, you know, the oh, totally. selling it before you do it. Yeah. And every, every step of the way for us has been a minimally, minimally viable product. So uh, to add some more context here, the first six months of Death of the Stock Photo was just an email list. And so there was nothing else. There was a landing page. It's still up today. It's just one page. You can't even scroll on it. Um, that that kind of tells you what we're about and asks you to sign up. And that was six months of that. And then after about six months, as it had grown a ton, we started saying, okay, well, what if we want to test out selling some type of product? So we cobbled together like a really pretty bad MVP that was this wedding software where we hosted all of our photos and a purchase button through Gumroad. So people could go in, they could buy access to all the photos we had shot uh, through Gumroad, and then we'd send them a login on this wedding kind of white labeled wedding photographer software that -hmm. lets you showcase or share photos so people had to make two different accounts if they wanted to buy from us but it let us test out that that kind of idea and we used the revenue that came in from uh, that first product to build our own proprietary software so we said to ourselves like if 500 people sign up for this you know cobble together product and they actually find value then we'll take this more seriously and build our own thing and I think like 430 or something like that, people signed up. And so we were kind of just like, okay, close enough. Like, right. <laughs> uh, you know, almost there. And so that's when we started building our first product. And that was about four months before the crowdfunding campaign. So the crowdfunding campaign was a slightly separate concept. Um, yeah, but also a test, just like you were saying. Yeah, so that's really important what you said about 
using something that already existed before you went about building your own. Now you have your own software, you host it yourself. It's gorgeous. Um, you know, all those things. And I'm sure, obviously, it didn't work the way you wanted it to work. It was just a solution that existed to to test it to see it, if it would work in the market. And I, and I still feel that way now. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think that's the other thing too, is when you're trying to build just better and better products, you kind of always look at whatever you're putting out is the step before the next step. So, you know, even if it is maybe more proprietary or more elegant of a solution, you're still kind of thinking in these terms, or at least I'm still thinking in these terms of like, this is, there's always a next phase and it, there's, there's always a next piece. And the reason we're doing it this way now is for that next layer afterward. Do you always know what the next layer is, David, when you're starting on the current layer? Because um, there is this kind of tendency to think next steps always. And, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, goal setting and forward thinking and um, but yet still living in the moment. It's very conflicting. How do you how do you manage that for death to stock and for yourself? Well, I think, you know, that's a great question. I think the first thing is we try to be a lot more intentional about what the layers are. So rather than adding a lot of layers, like every step is a bigger kind of step up. Um, where I know some software companies, they'll, they'll kind of build a, a lot of different small stuff to get to that next kind of level. Uh, so I think for us, we don't change a lot all the time. But when we make changes, it's kind of like sweeping. So I think we're kind of always thinking about the next layer. I don't think we have to think too far down the road. Like I don't have I don't have the five, I mean, I have the five, 10 year vision for the brand itself and kind of where we want to play. But in terms of like what that specifically looks like, I don't know if I have that in my head. Um, and then I think it's also recognizing there's a time to build for layers. There's a time to be somewhat in the moment. And also there's a time to like burn it all down and like innovate like super quickly for a company. So I think while we're on this path of building step by step, I also wouldn't shy away from catching some fire with a small little initiative and then like really doubling down and making some sweeping changes. And I think that's the benefit of being a small company is you're able to be a bit more nimble like that. So it's kind of like have the plan, have the next steps in mind, uh, know, yeah, know what that next level looks like for you, but also you can be aware of opportunities that strike where you can really make some sweeping changes. Yeah. So can we go back to where you said you had this, software that you were using someone else's and you had your mm -hmm. 437 people purchase and yeah um and those people were super gracious <laughs> i'm like you know those people like i could will thank them forever um and i know at the time we sent personal thank you notes like to everybody who signed up so it's just like sometimes 400 people give you a shot and that's like what you need i just wanted to mention that yeah well, and and I actually remember that um, launching because you and I live in the same city. And um, when Death is, Death of the Stock photo just first came out, um, I was you know aware of it from c local conversations and um, some Facebook groups that I was in that people were talking about it. And uh, and I noticed that I didn't know it was here um, where I'm in Columbus. And um, and I saw an, a party announcement and I was like, oh, I actually know where that is. Oh, they're in my backyard. And I remember reaching out and saying hi to you in an email and getting a personal email back from you and, and another one from Allie. And I just thought that was so, so amazing. Do you feel like that personal touch that you had in the beginning with those 
those 437 and and you know even beyond that that personal touch really led to the reach that you have today yeah that's i think that's everything i think you know one of the things we did early on a lot of people will ask like just because our email list has grown a lot like how did you build the email list and it's never one action there was no like quote unquote like growth hack for us it was anytime people used our photos like reading the blog post that they wrote with one of our photos and then commenting like we're their friend, you know, like actually leaving feedback on that blog post. And so just a lot of manual, personal one-to-one connection and and really the road trip for us, which getting those people to back us for the road trip was the same type of thing. It's like it let people get to know us better. It let us build relationships with them. You know, we sent thank you notes to every single person who backed that. And so I think 100% it's been all trying to build it all one person by one person at a time. Um, and I still, you know, write, I guess, emails back and forth with a lot of people. And it's almost the curse of growing a little bit. Like you want to figure out how you can shrink again in some ways, just so you can get back to that, because that's what really builds the, the long-term potential. And, and so just one example of that, we have a, a email list called the Writer's List, which is for specifically for people who are looking to start a writing habit. And basically, we send out a writing prompt every Wednesday that they can respond to. And right now, since that's like in the early phases, we we respond. Every, everybody who responds to our prompt, we will follow up with and comment on that post. And like, it's definitely like takes a lot of time to do that. Yeah. But it's just super important because, I mean, A, we're trying to help you get started writing. And if you feel like you're writing in a void, you don't want to continue. Um, so it's like helping their success. But it's also just what builds the relationships early on uh, that sets you up for later. I know you said that the writer's prompt is still in its early phases, but do you see a correlation between, I mean, that's, is that a, a free thing you can join? Anyone can join the writer's prompt? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've done 25. So the last 25 weeks we put one out. Uh, it's, it's amazing because people write every single week and respond, which is really fun to see. Uh, we, we respond to everybody who responds mm-hmm. with some thoughtful critique, uh, feedback, just cheering them on. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it, it is a little bit reminiscent of early days in the sense that we're making things so that you can go create and we're going to kind of cheer you on and, and build that community along the way. And do you see a, a tie-in yet? Maybe it's still too early, but um, do you see a tie-in between that and someone becoming a, a member of the Death to the Stock Photo family or um, purchasing a product from you in some way? Um, sure. Or is that not even the end game with the writer's group? Uh, I think, no, those are, that, that's a really great question to ask. I think it's too, it's kind of both at the same time. Part of me loves it because it's like, wow, we're like helping people write every single week. Like you can, I mean, you can see it like instantly as a result, people are now creating blog posts from the prompt. And so part of me sees that and is just like, I know there's value there. I'm not exactly sure what that is over the long run, but it's worth kind of cultivating because that's a powerful thing to be able to do. Uh, within a community, but then at the same time, and this is this is why it's great to have a team that can ask those types of questions because uh, Sean, who's effectively our, our COO, is the guy who's always asking me like, how does that work with the product? Like, where what's the purpose for that? And and I do think there's a tie-in in the sense that what we've done, and we've done this with Medium actually as a partnership before, is we're removing barriers for you to get started creating. So when you're writing on Medium. As a blogger or as a new blogger, you could say to yourself, oh, man, I can't write today because I don't have a blog. It's like, well, Medium's free and it takes a second to set up. Mm. And it's like, well, I can't write today because I don't know what to write about. It's like, well, we're going to send you a prompt every week. 
And then it's like, well, there's no fo- I don't have any photos, so I can't finish the blog post on it's done. It's like, well, we have this thing, death of the stock photo. Um, <laughs> and so it's kind of like trying to remove every single layer, every single barrier they might face. And the last one is, well, no one's going to read my writing. And it's like, actually, we read everyone's writing and comment on it. Yeah. And we'll be your editor. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, I guess the practical level is maybe the ecosystem of helping someone create, which is like, oh, do you need help with photos? Well, we have that. Uh, do you need a place to write? You know, there's Medium. And so it's kind of filling in the pieces of the ecosystem for us long term. But then there's also part of me that's just like, I just think it's cool that we can make people move like that. And I know there's value there long term. I'm not sure exactly what it is. So it, I'd say it's both and. And identifying a need uh, from your audience that either you didn't know existed or maybe even some of them didn't know existed. And and that's what I think is most valuable that, that you do is identify those needs, um, just like you did early on with the, the large brand saying you have a need for this imagery. You just haven't quite realized it yet. It's you're mm-hmm. going to need it tomorrow and wish you had it today. Um, yeah. And and being able to identify that and all because you have that personal connection with your with your audience, with your community, to be able to to know exactly what they need, even just before they need it. Oh, totally. I think one of our one of our biggest assets, like if not our biggest asset as a company, I like to use the metaphor of like having a laboratory, which is people in our community, especially early on, were very willing to hop on the phone with us, very willing to give feedback, and having that is just so important. Um, and I'm just you know, hugely grateful again to people in our community for being willing just to hop on the phone or just chat through stuff. And having that like, quote unquote, laboratory where you've got things you can test and you can put stuff out and see a reaction, or you can get people on the phone easily is like such a massive piece of just getting there for your business. Because in the early days, it's like, it's kind of hard to get people on the phone. Nobody knows your brand. People don't want to leave feedback. If you put something out in the world, you don't see what the reaction is. Now, just through the email list, we can try a thing and you'll know right away, you know, if it connects or not. And not only that, there's people there who are willing to spend the time with you to give you the feedback you need. So I almost think for some people, it's like, if you can build yourself this laboratory, if you can build some type of system that allows you to put stuff into the world and get a reaction or have a community who's willing to talk with you. And that, and that's really what content marketing, I think, can help with, uh, it's just hugely valuable. It helps you know where to go next. You've mentioned with me being getting on the phone with um, with your community, with your members of um, the group and different people that have purchased from you in the past and specifically getting on the phone with them. And I think that that's so scary for a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, especially when you feel like, well, I have their email. I'll just email them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what has the value been in actually picking up the phone? I mean, some of these, you, you mentioned having a system. And for you, it sounds like it's as basic as dialing a phone number and writing down notes. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's massive. Because I think my job is really to read between the lines. I think the problem with the email-based feedback is for, for certain types of feedback, especially when you're making product decisions, is they might say one thing, but actually need something else. Um, and so what I look for when I hop on the phone, and I actually have some structure for the interview questions that I ask. Uh, definitely, I try to do it in groups of 10. So I'd like to ask the same questions to 10 people at a time. And that's pretty structured. And what I'm looking for is patterns, like just 
how many people out of that group mentioned this almost the same words. Like it's almost incredible what people say in their interviews because three other people might say almost exactly the same thing. And that's how you know you're onto something. And that's also how you can suggest a solution that maybe they didn't exactly think they needed, but fit in with some of the, the problems they talked about. So the, the conversations I have with people, I don't really care too much about like demographic data, like, you know, what's your job? What's your age? That doesn't matter too much to me. I, I want to just talk about problems almost the entire time. And after talking through problems, I want to talk about what solutions they've been trying. Um, so I'd say that's, that's been the key for me in interviewing is hopping on the phone to see between the lines versus what you'd get in an email and looking for patterns among the problems and the solutions that they're currently trying uh, to solve those problems. And it all takes time to do that, to get on yeah. the phone with individuals. Yeah, yeah I, tell, I tell everybody it's just a 15-minute chat, but it almost is always 30 minutes, which is, which yeah. is good. But you, you know, for them, it's time too. So that's why you're like, oh, it's only going to be 15. But you know, here's, here's another interesting thing I'd say just based on doing interviews like that is when, when you get people talking about their problems, they kind of love it. Uh, and so almost sometimes the interviews go longer because those people are enjoying talking not even just me kind of finding stuff. And that could be cool in itself and just like connecting with other humans, you know? Um, but I thought that's a funny kind of side note with that too, is just uh, pe- when you talk about, when you let people talk about their problems, they end up, you know, getting into it. And that's the good stuff that you also learn. Everyone wants to be heard. And so to yeah. be, to have a captive audience on the other end of the phone, who's specifically asking you about what's going on, you know, that's, yeah. that's invaluable to, to your customers too. Mm-hmm. David, what do you think that you it is that you've done that has the biggest reach that has achieved the biggest reach for you? Uh, as far as a post or just generally what I would I do in, in the, the business, business um, either a particular post on the blog that has had a, a large reach or um, a, th- a thing that you do in the business that hasn't contributed to your reach? Yeah, so I think maybe a specific example and then a general strategy. Uh, I think, you know, we've we haven't missed a free email uh, since July, 2013. So every first of the month since then, we like without fail, we have shipped something of value that we're trying our hardest to create, uh, for our community as a practice. And I think that's been probably the most valuable thing as a company that we do to, to grow our reach, which is consistently showing up and delivering something that even though it's free, it's of equal value to something that would be paid and through those emails, pushing our limits, like we're not just trying to, I guess, skim by, like we're trying to make that better actively. And then just communicating with our audience, like in every email, we have communication, which is what we're thinking about, themes, ideas, stories. Um, so I'd say as a practice of the business to grow our reach, it's been consistently showing up to communicate and add value to our community, um, which I guess seems like a, a simple idea, but it, I, it's there's not a ton of people who maybe execute that well, that consistently for that long. Um, as a specific example, one of the campaigns I'm most proud of, I'd say personally, is an email campaign we did, which kind of started from a conversation I had with an internet friend of mine, Jason Zook, which is just, we kind of were just talking about like responsibility to give back. Like how are we using our talents to give back even outside of the value we provide in the business? Um, and there's this cool kind of documentary on the guy who started five hour energy that was really inspiring that I watched 
which that guy's amazing if you haven't checked him out. <laughs> he does like so much incredible nonprofit work. Um, but so anyways, we started thinking about what can we do to give back? And, you know, the most straightforward thing for us is we have the ability to produce really high quality media with artists from all over. And so what we did was we decided to, to donate a shoot to a nonprofit and nonprofits particularly have the issue of having high quality imagery because the stuff that's out there is just so not representative of of their cause. It's just cheesy. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel real. And so I think they almost feel the pain point more than our general customer base. And so what we want to do is, is pay to have a really quality photographer do a shoot that really benefited them. So we sent out an email to our audience asking who is a nonprofit that you love that is deserving of a photo shoot. And just the response we got from that and just the engagement and the, the kind of two way conversation of like, we want to do something good. We want your help to figure out where we can best be helpful. Uh, I think that was an incredible campaign. I think, I don't remember exactly how, me- how many, but over probably 2,200 people submitted nonprofits. So wow. it was kind of scary because it's like, oh man, I have to like really dig now to find <laughs> who we're going to pick. Um, and actually, luckily my sister is like super, she, she works a ton with different nonprofits. So she helped me kind of call that list down to about 10 and then I hopped on the phone with all of them or just over email and kind of try to get a p- better picture. But having that engagement or that moment of kind of conversation with our audience was definitely one of the most effective campaigns we've ever done. Um, and then we, we shot the campaign. We shot the, the photos for them. It was an incredible story. We picked a, a nonprofit that serves refugees in all over the country called Welcome America. And yeah, I think just super meaningful. It was definitely like a, a encouragement of values and kind of our heart mixed with a conversation with our community that was very effective there. It's cool because everyone loves spending someone else's money. So you got the community to get rallied around who you should give money to. Yeah. And I just think it's cool to see other people take action to help someone else. Like it's just really, that's like amazing buy-in and that's what makes me love our community so much is like, that's an incredible thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're working on some other stuff kind of similar that I'd like to launch this summer that I'm pretty excited about that would be along the same lines in terms of how we engage our community. So, but yeah, I'd say that that's been the biggest, just what I saw in the reaction, how many emails I got, how many people submitted, mm-hmm. that was the biggest reach. And that's the personal touch and at play again, you know, it's that direct interaction, people feeling really tied to something, they get the choice. Um, all of that is that personal touch that you've talked about all along. So mm-hmm. on the opposite side of things, what do you feel like didn't have as much reach as you wanted it to um, in either a particular campaign or something that you did in the business that just didn't pan out? Yeah. So sometimes we do stuff for fun that ends up being huge reach. And then sometimes we do stuff for fun that ends up being small reach. So sometimes you have like kind of quirky projects that you think are like secretly going to blow up and then you just get no engagement. Mm. But uh, one thing one thing that I thought was interesting that didn't seem to get the reaction or the full kind of reach that I expected is we started doing this thing where we'd actually accept photographer or artist proposals for projects that they had been dying to create but couldn't carve out the time, didn't have the money, couldn't justify going to do it. And we'd actually fund those projects. And so we have some like incredible stories that I think partly was our fault and not sharing correctly, but also just didn't seem like it resonated as well with our community as I expected it to. 
which is uh, funding some incredible artists to, to go pursue the projects they wanted, like enabling them to go create that art piece or go to that location. Um, and we've even done this where two or three times already, we've actually, I think three times now, we've bought camera gear for artists whose camera gear was stolen oh. in, in exchange for a photo set. So there's a great photographer who's based out of Alaska uh, and she had been in Seattle for a wedding shoot and $10,000 worth of camera gear got stolen. And it's like, that's like her livelihood. Like, yeah. she, I mean, literally like that's, that is like how she functions with her business. So, um, there's a really great lens for Canon that we basically just said, we'll pay for that lens. And then when you're back on your feet, shoot a set for us and we'll just make it a trade. And we've done that three times now. Um, and so those stories that we do put out, I think a we could we could probably storytell that a lot better. But what's what's cool for me is the reason we have the cash to do the, that type of work is our premium memberships. Mm. So we kind of did a campaign or have have blogged about this before, where it's like you guys like your money is going to help these artists and they're making stuff that now you get to benefit from, and it's just like a great relationship. But it doesn't seem like other people have like been as mind blown by that maybe as, as I am. Um, and so I'm happy we're still doing stuff like that and we still actively do, but it hasn't been a central story for the brand the way I expected. Cool. So just because it has a smaller reach than you expected, it doesn't mean you stop doing it entirely. Yeah. I think there's tons of other benefits. Um, and, and it's funny because when I, when I talk about it one-on-one people love it, but from a storytelling perspective online, it just doesn't seem like it's connected. And I, I kind of want to keep telling our premium people, like, you guys are funding amazing things. Like, you're getting all this great stuff, but you're also helping all these cool artists. But, yeah, I, I, I don't want to keep pushing that message uh, just because I'm so psyched about it either. So uh, I think we'll kind of still do it in the background, but it just wasn't as effective from, like, a purely marketing reach standpoint. Yeah, and it could just be spinning the story or not spinning it because I feel like that word sounds like you're trying to turn it into something it's not but just changing the positioning of how you're telling like you said different storytelling yeah I think it's um, on us I think that could probably still connect I just don't think we've done it right what do you think um you really want to do with all this reach that you have achieved at this point um and to go along with that do you want more of a reach do you feel like where you're at now is good would you almost want less yeah, see, that's that's a great question going back to what I was saying about being intentional and just stepping back. And I think it's great to ask that question and then kind of make a decision. I definitely want more reach as long, uh, as long as it's helping the mission that we have. So I don't really want any more reach if it's to kind of just, I don't know, keep pursuing stuff that doesn't really matter for my kind of core mission. Um, and so... I think what I what I'd like to do if I could reach more people is continue to really deliver uh, on some of just the ideas and I guess themes that I'm personally pursuing and and trying to continue to like talk about. And so what I what I really like to do is help people kind of carve out their own unique path. Like I mean I guess even my own story is an example of that. But what I like seeing is people who kind of create their own unique little space in the world, their own path, their own project that's like right for them. And it's kind of outside the shoulds or wants of, of other people. And so the way I describe that is I do it in three different ways. The, f- the first is I lead by example. And so for the brand and for the increased reach of the brand, I want to be an example so that we can model 
that type of lifestyle and kind of building your own rules and, and doing what's right for you. And the second thing is really about giving resources. So how can I resource these people that I'm reaching with just piece, you know, pieces or money or media that help them go create that thing? So what our product does right now is, is helps people create kind of like the bloggers on the writer's list. Um, I'm, I'm giving them resources, but resources could even be just be funding an artist or it could be backing someone's Kickstarter or resources as just encouragement. And then the, the third thing that helps me kind of help other people uh, create the lifestyle they want is education. So sharing, you know, sharing what I know and expressing kind of these ideas publicly, you know, even this podcast kind of helps me, me hit that mission. Um, and so I have, a, I have a personal email list. We have a, another email list called the Propaganda Email List, which is kind of my personal thoughts about some of this stuff. Um, so I, I think when it comes to do I want more reach, 100% I want infinite reach if it aligns with those values. If it's just to get more reach because I think that's what I should be doing, like why not have more followers, then I don't really care about that. We'll link up to your personal email list too so people can join that if they want to do so and learn more about creating that personal brand or, you know, that individual lifestyle cool. piece that you, ta- yeah. Um, because, you know, your mission of helping people really do what they want to be doing and, and, and not necessarily following the norm or the, the shoulds or, or whatever's of the world. Um, that's really unique. And so knowing that you stand behind that in the way that you are growing your reach is um, that's a great place to come from and, and having that as your foundation, knowing why, why you would want to grow your reach if it were to grow. Um, that's pretty powerful from a business perspective to be able to take out and it probably informs a lot of what you do. Yeah. And, and totally. And I just want to bring up one other topic here too, that I think is interesting, which is the word impact. And so I think, there's two ways you can expand your reach. You can you can double the overall number of people that you're serving, but you also can go doubly as deep with the people you're currently serving. And so to me, I guess I see reach maybe also as impact. And it's kind of also asking the questions of like, how do I how do I double the value that I'm providing even to the current people? And so again, when it comes to the mission and stuff that's aligned with the mission, I want I want all of that infinite, infinite depth and infinite reach if it's aligned aligned with the values. And providing kind of what I think I can share or give to people. That's such a great point about impact and going going deeper with what already exists and really caring for the audience that's already there and cultivated, whether it's four or 400 or 400,000. It could be, you know, anything in between, but just going going deeper and making sure the impact with them is really solid before trying to reach further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. David... In closing, is there anything that influenced you the most, whether it's a, a particular blog post or a, a podcast or a book or a person even that influenced you when it came to achieving the reach that you have today? Yeah, I mean, man, I still feel like I'm learning so much. I feel like every week I have like a giant mind shift about like some <laughs> new idea. But uh, I, I guess like a fun fact about me is I have one tattoo and it's on my left uh, tricep. And it's an Icarus wing, which is from my favorite book that I've read maybe, I don't even know, 20 times, 10 plus times. I have it on audiobook and hard copy. It's called The Icarus Deception by Seth Godin. So um, every time I read it, it's just so 
dense of knowledge. <laughs> like there's just so much there. Um, so I'd say that book has been the most impactful thing for me uh, in terms of just what I've been able to do. And I know I can go back to that all the time. Um, so much so that I got, I got a tattoo of the book and then I'm super weird. And I listened to it on audiobook while I was getting the tattoo just to really drill it, drill it home. No, I think that's good. And you should definitely (laughs) listen to something while getting a tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, maybe there's some like brain trigger where pain and like learning knowledge at the same time, like ingrains it deeper. So that was kind of my, my test for that. I I, I hope it worked out for you. (laughs) I I think I've read it enough that it doesn't matter either way, to be honest. Um, David, thank you so much for spending time with us today. What you have taught me and our listeners is invaluable. Um, And knowing what is behind the reach that you have with Death to the Stock photo um, makes me love the brand even more. And I know our, our listeners will feel the same. So thank you for doing what you do, for knowing why your reach is what it is and and the impact like you mentioned that you have behind all of it awesome thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and it's always fun to chat that was david sherry of death to the stock photo and you can find out more about david and his projects at death to the stock grab our free action guide from this episode to help you impact your own reach today Head to convertkit.com slash reach or simply click the link provided right in your podcast player. It's time to expand your reach. We're so glad you started here. Thanks for listening.